Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Francis Gilles. He's a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean, and an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. From 1981 to 1995, he was the North Africa correspondent for the Financial Times and has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Le Monde, El Pais, and Middle East Eye. Today, we're going to look at France, the countries of North Africa, and the legacy of colonialism. Francis, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. In your uh, most recent Middle East Eye article, uh, you raised many points worth pursuing about France and North Africa, and you were rather critical of uh, President Macron. Can I begin with Algeria? Because Algeria is often ignored by the West, but in reality is a powerful force in North Africa. So uh, what is President Macron, who uh, is facing a presidential election on 10th of April, uh, what has he got wrong when it comes to Algeria? Uh, well, dealing with Algeria for any French president is a, is a very delicate issue because of the uh, complex history between the two countries for the last 200 years, and particularly the War of Liberation. Um, so Monsieur Macron has been courting certain voters in France who are of Algerian origin, or at least uh, uh, who were born in Algeria or whose parents were born in Algeria, be they Europeans, formerly native Muslims, which is fair enough. After all, it's an electoral campaign and it's being fought uh, on a number of issues, including that of immigration and fear of terrorism. But where I think President Macron goes wrong is when he starts rewriting history for the purposes of his own campaign. And there was a very good example of this uh, four months ago when he received in the Elysee the grandchildren or children of native Muslims who'd fought with the French during the War of Liberation. Uh, and he poked fun at the Turks, saying uh, the Turks should look at their own history of colonization in Algeria um, rather than giving us lessons. Now, that is rather absurd because, first of all, the Ottoman were in Algeria from 1515 to 1830, but they were not colonists. They were called to Algeria by local um, religious and other leaders in 1515, because at that time, Spain was occupying the main ports on the North African coast. It was soon to conquer Tunis, and therefore uh, the, uh, the people in Algiers, which was a small town at the time, were afraid of meeting the fate of Granada, which had been taken by the Spaniards in 1492 and from which the Moors and the Jews had been expelled. So the Ottoman history in Algeria for 300 years has got nothing to do with colonialism. Uh, and therefore, when the president pokes fun or insults the Turks and the Algerians by rewriting history, I'm not sure this contributes to a useful dialogue between France and Algeria. And in terms of, of, of that relationship, the Algeria-French relationship, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a long, difficult and, and complicated one. But, but also I'm just wondering, too, about the relations then between Algeria and Morocco and whether Macron's approach to Algeria somehow complicates 
issues on that front, uh, thinking too of the uh, the Western Sahara issue, which of course uh, President Trump basically said to the Moroccans, look, you can have it as long as you recognize uh, Israel. So th this kind of transactional approach has really muddied things. But coming back to, to Monsieur Macron, uh, what, what is the situation there vis-a-vis uh, -vis Algeria and Morocco? Well, there are two or three points to, which have not changed under Monsieur Macron. First of all, uh, France has always supported Morocco on the Western Saharan issue, whatever the United Nations or the Americans tried to do to solve the issue. So this is nothing new. It goes back 45 years. Uh, secondly, it's not just Monsieur Macron who is in a, in a bit of a pickle about the Western Sahara because the European Union is too, because they officially, the European Union does not recognize Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara, but it signs with Morocco fishing agreements and it fishes off the very rich coast of the Western Sahara. Uh, meanwhile, the International Court of Justice says, well, this fish is not just Moroccan, it's also Saharan, and the states of Europe take no notice because their economic interests always trump their political principles. I mean, this is not just here, it's true in the Middle East, it's true elsewhere. Two further points. One, there has been no war between Algeria and Morocco for 45 years, and there's unlikely to be one. Both countries' leaders find it convenient to whip up public opinion on the issue. But the Algerian people have never been interested in the Western Sahara. The Moroccan people, on the other hand, have. Uh, furthermore, contrary to what many people in the West believe, notably in NATO, for Algeria, uh, Morocco is not its prime enemy. The, the key thing about Algerian defense chiefs, the military who run Algeria, they do not like foreign military intervention in the countries of Northwest Africa, in neighboring countries. That goes particularly for NATO-backed intervention in Libya. In 2011, the Algerians are, were very unhappy, continue to be very unhappy about that intervention and the huge mess that's resulted in Libya, in Mali, in Niger, in, um, in other countries in the Sahel Belt. Well, now you mentioned Libya and Algerian unhappiness with uh, the NATO intervention that uh, overturned or helped overturn Gaddafi. But uh, President Macron is backing another Libyan strongman, Ali Haftar. So for, for the Algerians, the, the main issue is the presence of foreigners, and they're all the more unhappy about Libya because France has backed the warlord of the, of the East, General Haftar. That has meant bringing in the United Arab Emirates. It's meant bringing in Sudanese fighters, Chechens, Syrians, God knows who. And it's also ushered in the Ru Russians through the Varjna group of mercenaries. So the Algerian leadership looks at France, and they are not alone in thinking that French policy has been very adventurous. The Italians were furious about the French backing Haftar. Um, uh, a very respected German commentator, Wolfram Lachey, who belongs to SWP in Berlin, has argued recently that French diplomacy 
and behavior in Libya has actually destroyed any hope of a European position and influence in Libya. And the Wagner group is now installed in Mali. So one wonders how this is in French interests. Now, the support for Haftar predates Monsieur Macron, but Monsieur Macron has, particularly at the beginning of his presidency, uh, carried out a kind of solo diplomacy on Libya, and there again to the fury of the Italians. So we have a whole lot of issues which are mixed. And I think that one of the problems France faces is that its influence in North Africa is declining relatively, as is that of Europe, not just because of the contradictions of its own policies, but because the presence of China, the presence of Russia, and also because the elites in North Africa, and this goes to the Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, but particularly Algeria and Tunisia, the elites of these countries are changing. They are more nationalistic. They're not prepared to counter Western interference. This is very visible in Tunisia with President Kais Sayed. I've just come back from Tunis and whatever one thinks of Kais Sayed, he clearly has touched a chord in the Tunisian population. They don't want the West lecturing to them. So we have a sort of situation which is shifting on all sides. And I would argue it's not so much that it's easy for the French to devise a policy which is coherent, but I'm not sure whether this way of poking the Algerians, particularly on history, serves any useful purpose in the medium term. So this resentment at foreign intervention, Macron, by backing Khalifa Haftar, has actually encouraged the the uh, intervention and uh, and indeed the resentment has grown as a result. He's opened the door. Well, I mean, it particularly opened the door to the Turks. And there's no point in blaming Mr. Erdogan for intervening in Tripoli uh, to save the government of national unity, which is the one recognized by the United Nations, if you yourself are supporting Haftar. And I think that introducing the Gulf, particularly the United Arab Emirates, and their proxy fighters into Libya, quite clearly, um, this has made the issue much more complicated than it was five or six years ago and is making any solution even more elusive. Now, why did the French intervene uh, so much in favor of Haftar? One of the arguments is that if you sell a lot of weapons to the um, fancy weapons to the Emirates, you have to pay a price politically, in a sense, go along with them on certain of their policies. That may well be the case. It's also the fact that the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Monsieur Le Drian, who is not respected by many French diplomats, who was former Minister of Defense under Hollande, Monsieur uh, Le Drian was seduced by Haftar. When he met Haftar, he seems to think that, he seems to have thought that that man could unify Libya. He was a savior Libya. And in this, he has been totally mistaken. He's shown to be wrong. Yeah, and uh, the relationship between Mohammed bin Zayed, the Abu Dhabi Crown Prince, and uh, President Macron, 
that's a very interesting one. As you say, uh, there was a certain level of seduction, I suppose, in, in, when you look at, at Libya. But do you think, because m- many people look at Mohammed bin Zayed, MBZ, and say, you know, he is the most astute, the most effective, the most strategically smart leader in the Middle East right now, that that relationship is a positive one, or do you think it's damaging France? Well, I, I think the view I have, and it's not alone because the uh, a professor of history at Sciences Po, who is excellent on the Middle East, Jean-Pierre Filiou, has himself expressed grave doubts about Macron's policy in that area. He's wondered aloud, and he's not alone, whether he is really batting for French interests, one has to remember, France sells weapons to the Middle East, fair enough. But at the same time, France has millions of Muslim citizens who hail from North Africa. It has very strong trade links and human links with uh, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. And these uh, interests, this meshing, is extremely important, including in French domestic politics. Um, one can see how anything to do with Algeria becomes a football in France because that's history. It's a bit like Ireland in England, you know, Ireland because of history, uh, pops up all over the place. In the case of uh, North Africa and France, what has further complicated issues was the, this policy of Trump and in particular the visit of the Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs to Morocco in August last year where he gave a press conference in company with his Moroccan counterpart, Mr. Burita, and they started taunting Algeria, saying, you know, we're very worried about the links between Algeria and Iran. Uh, We think the region of Kabylia and Algeria should become independent, coming from Moroccans who haven't sorted out the legal status of the Western Sahara, that's a bit rich. And then by doing that, they forgot that the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Algeria, who's a seasoned diplomat, Monsieur Lamamra, is a Kabyle himself. So they were pushing their luck very far. And the result of their taunts, I would call them insults, is that the Algerians closed the gas pipeline running between Algeria and Spain via Morocco. Meanwhile, all the meantime, ensuring that the Spanish did not lack in gas. So the fallout of these kinds of, uh, uh, of posturing, of endless posturing and taunting is really rather bad. And it certainly doesn't help the Europeans because when the gas light pipeline was closed, the European Union or France, they said nothing and they couldn't have done anything. But it is a very sad fact when a major piece of infrastructure of this kind, which was built to reinforce links political, economic, and energy between North Africa and Europe is closed. It's all the more sad, if you will, when we are confronting Russia in Ukraine, we are threatening Russia with not using Nord Stream 2, the pipeline from Russia to Germany. And meantime, we don't seem to be able to get any coherent policy afoot vis-a-vis North Africa. Yeah, I, I, can I just bring you back to Mohammed bin Zayed and uh, President Macron, that, that relationship, whether you think that's a positive one for the French or, or whether you think it carries some uh, risk for, for them? Well, it, it does carry risks, but then, you know, we are all beholden to the money of oil and to these huge arms contracts because 
They're very lucrative for France, for America, for Britain, for everybody in the West, but they carry a political price. And then we get involved with people. You see, we're in total contradiction. The European Union, the French, preach democracy to everybody in North Africa. And meanwhile, some of their closest allies are people whose democratic credentials, to put it mildly, are not very convincing. Uh, you preach to Erdogan on democracy. Uh, meanwhile, your great ally is the United Arab Emirates. And there are a lot of people in North Africa, uh, maybe not in Morocco, but certainly in Tunisia and Algeria, who feel very uncomfortable about these Gulf states getting involved in North Africa because they just feel, rightly in my view, that they have no business there. And there are a lot of French and Italian and German and Spanish analysts who actually feel the same thing. We don't need to complicate what are already very complex issues by introducing actors who have their own interests. And particularly now that the United Arab Emirates and Israel are allies, their, their only interest is in fanning the flames between Algeria and Morocco. Is that really what France wants? Does, do French leaders think that that is the way of the future? Instead of uh, pouring water on the fire, you're pouring oil. So I'm not quite sure. All, it seems to me there's a huge confusion. There's no strategic thinking going on at all. And this is acknowledged in private. Uh, I've talked to various people in you know, London, Paris and Brussels, and in private, this is acknowledged. And as I said before, it's not as if devising a policy towards Algeria in particular, or Tunisia or Morocco is easy, but at least we could avoid making strategic blunders. But then maybe we make strategic, tactical blunders and strategic blunders because we don't think, we, stop, we seem to stop thinking about what are our long-term interests in that part of the world. Mm, yeah, um, I wanted to, you mentioned Mali, and uh, one of the Sahara okay. countries that several of them facing varying levels of jihadist insurrections. But as you've noted in that, that Middle East Eye article, um, this should not be seen as a case of uh, jihadist versus everyone else. So is that again, another unforced error of Macron's injecting France into a military effort to solve well, jihadism? Uh, when, as you say, the story in Mali and elsewhere is much more complex and layered than that? Well, I think uh, Macron, to be honest, just inherited the situation. Ever since 9-11, everything in the West was seen for many years through the prism of radical Islam and jihadism. And uh, the war on terror, as we know, is an oxymoron, and the result is not very convincing. I think we're less secure than we were uh, 20 years ago. In the case of West Africa, and I'm not an expert on the Sahel, but I note that, first of all, France has had relations called La France-Afrique with these countries for the last 60 years since independence. And all too often, it's tended to back dictators rather than Democrats, number one. Secondly, there have been strong economic ties between these countries, uranium in, in, uh, in the Sahel Belt. But of course, in the last 10 years, the Chinese have arrived and they have invested. And then the West denounces China, but China is not doing anything much very different from what the West did for generations. So it all becomes a bit more difficult, but the Chinese have money. 
And then the Russians, who are very adept at asymmetrical warfare, are using the Vajna group both for, for reasons of mining predation. And I think they're basically, they're just fanning the flames to make life more complicated for the, for the French or the Europeans. But I think people who know that part of the world better than I do, like Antoine Glazer in Paris, have pointed out again and again and again that the conflicts in Mali, in Burkina Faso, in uh, Niger, in Central Africa are very complex. They're not just linked to climate change, they're linked to fights between sedentary and uh, tribal uh, groups. Uh, they're, they're all kinds of crisscrosses of, uh, of, of conflicts which are very difficult to solve and which cannot be solved uh, by military means alone. And furthermore, in the last uh, 40 years, from 1979, the attack on the mosque in Mecca to 2010, roughly, the Saudis alone, according to the Americans, spent about $100 billion spreading their form of Wahhabism, of hard Islam, across the world, notably in that part of the world. So that part of the world is in a huge mess. But military solutions alone will not solve it. And then there again, there's a wonderful contradiction. Uh, in recent weeks, the French president has denounced the coup d'etat in, uh, uh, in Mali, and now we've got another coup d'etat in a neighboring country in Burkina Faso. But meanwhile, when the very harsh leader of Chad, Idris Déby, who had a very good army, was killed a few months back, France endorses his son. Uh, there again, we're, we're in the same position today. Why do you think France and the European Union are in a very awkward position in Tunisia? President Gaïs Sayed suspended basically the constitution is concentrating all powers. It's because they say one thing to one leader and another thing to another. You can't preach democracy to the Tunisians if you're so, uh, so great pals of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, when the Hirak movement in Algeria threw millions of Algerians into the streets in 2019 in a non-violent movement, Europe had nothing to say. France had nothing to say. But then we turn around and we criticize Mr. Erdogan. So I think that our preaching human rights, which I, frankly, we're doing it very cynically. NGOs may believe in it, but I don't believe the Western government believe in it one minute. So we got so mixed up in our contradictions uh, that, uh, that we are losing influence and we are losing power. You've touched on, on Tunisia and President Macron has backed uh, Kais Saeed and last summer's uh, soft coup. And that coup snuffed out the one democracy, albeit fragile, that had emerged from the Arab Spring and survived for the better part of a decade. What does... Monsieur Macron do with Tunisia? Well, it's not just Monsieur Macron. It's the West, because uh, I've uh, just come back from Tunis. I've spoken to Western diplomats in Tunis, and they, they just, they're completely at a loss to know what to do. Why? First of all, because they had fancied Tunisian democracy. Well, a lot of people in the West, in the media, politicians, think tanks, sung the praise of Tunisian democracy. Unfortunately, Tunisian democracy is, to 
quite some extent a figment of the West's imagination. The parties didn't represent any interests. The notion of moderate Islamists led by Mr. Hanushi was also some, it was conjured up in Western think tanks, so it doesn't mean anything. There were no political parties to articulate economic and social interests, number one. Number two, uh, the constitution of 2014 is contradictory. It's very difficult to determine what powers the president has and what powers the prime minister has. Third, we discount the amount of money which came in from abroad. How much money did the Turks give to Nahda, to the Islamists? How much money did Qatar give to Nahda? How much money did Saudi Arabia give to the former president, Bejike de Sipsi? The courts have not been reformed and they're very repressive. The security forces have not been reformed. And meanwhile, the standard of living has plummeted. So the problem about Tunisia is there was never a revolution in 2011. There was a revolt, a popular revolt, which decapitated the ruling family. They were kicked out and the system didn't change. So to present Tunisia as a democracy is a flight of fancy. Sure, there was greater freedom of expression. There was very little torture. That is true. But most Tunisians today continue to support their president, though he has no economic plan. And this president will come a cropper if he continues to run the country with a few people around him like the way he is. People want results. But the average Tunisian to this day is so disgusted by what the West calls West democratic politics from 2011-2021 that they still support the president, although they are increasingly worried about what he is doing. But the West is in a bind because for years, the European Union, the IMF, the French, lent money and every time the Tunisians said we're going to reform and they didn't and the West continued to lend money and so the average Tunisian says but sorry the West said we were reforming we knew we weren't our leaders were not they were just pocketing the money and so the Tunisians don't believe a word the Europeans say and the Europeans are in a bind because in private some diplomats recognize they should have put the screws on a few years back and said, come on, we're not going to continue lending money if you make no reforms. We're not going to continue lending money if you just increase the civil service, the payroll by people who are totally incompetent, thus half destroying the, 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 uh, the civil service of Tunisia, which was good. We're not going to continue bankrolling this kind of mad show. And so... Now the West is in a position where it, it, it doesn't know exactly what to do. And finally, when you look at the agenda of Monsieur Macron in terms of his presidential campaign, when you look at Joe Biden, because America matters in Tunisia, they've got so much fish to fry. They've got so many issues to deal with. You could argue that Tunisia is maybe, you know, the, the idea is, well, let Tunisia run for the time being, because at the end of the day, as one senior IMF person said, and he's Tunisian, he said, Tunisia is, is dispensable and nobody cares about Tunisia. That's the situation where we are today. And it's a very messy situation. 
meanwhile, in Tunisia, the Algerians are backing Tunisia, which is important. They've put money at the central bank. The security forces of Algeria and Tunisia cooperate extremely well. And may I add, the Americans are aware of all this because the Americans are very much also the guarantors of Tunisia's frontier with Libya. So we are in a kind of, I don't know how you could describe it, a dog's meal. I don't know what it is. It's all over the floor, you could say. It, it really is very, very messy. Not all of this mess is the result of mistakes made by France or by the European Union or by America. The only thing one can say is that the, the idea that Tunisia was going to prove the democratic exception in the Arab world is an idea which could only be trotted out by people who don't know Tunisia. The other point is that democracy took generations to build in Western Europe and America, and it's still maybe not entirely safe today. So for the Tunisians, 10 years is a very short period of time, particularly when your economic situation is deteriorating. And anybody who knows the history of Europe, particularly of Germany, should understand that when you get an economic situation which is deteriorating, you're unlikely to be able to save or build democracy. That's a great lesson. But then nobody amongst our leaders today seems to read history. So that's another problem. Mm. Now, now, just finally, Francis, you and Tarek Megarisi have both argued eloquently on our podcast that Europe needs to take North Africa seriously, needs to understand how key the region is, needs to develop effective policies and strategies, hand on heart. Do you see that happening, Francis? I think the French need to, to re, to, to, you know, it needs new software. And they also need to understand, which some of them do, but many of them don't, that they can't conduct their policy on their own. This is where Monsieur Macron is maybe at fault. You can't suddenly convene all the Libyans and everybody to Paris when you've just been elected president and ignore the Italians. This is absolute disaster. And when you're dealing with Algeria or Morocco or Tunisia or Libya, you have to work with the other leading European countries, notably Germany, Spain and Italy, because they are, they're, they're close to North Africa. They have very great interests in North Africa, not just security. And also probably with Britain because of questions of, of broader questions of security. So nothing can be done outside a multilateral framework. And this is true, not just of North Africa. I suspect this is true of everything. Look at what's going on with Russia. In so far as the West can coordinate its response, it has a chance of succeeding. If the West does not, Europe and America, if they do not articulate their policies properly, then there is no chance whatsoever of succeeding. It's a lesson. It's true with China. I think it's true with the whole world. So you think that uh, Europe will continue to muddle along or do you think that Europe will look at North Africa through different lenses and perhaps come up with a more thoughtful approach? For the moment, we're muddling along and we're just uh, reacting to events with, with a, whether some major event in the next year or two 
really shake people out of their traditional ways of thinking or not. I really don't know. Um, you know, there are forces at work in North Africa which are changing the countries individually. And, uh, you know, which way is Algeria going to jump? I mean, anybody can guess that one, you know, it's worth his weight in gold. Uh, Morocco looks more stable, it's better run, but uh, Morocco also <laughs> has its own problems. And uh, allying closely with Israel may seem a clever move in the short term. I'm not sure in the longer run if, if this will guarantee stability in North Africa. And as for Tunisia, the reforms the IMF would enforce are probably not the right ones, but then it's up to the Tunisians, to the, the genius of the Tunisian people, to, to, to work out something which makes sense, which can put their country back on its feet. Uh, I think that's the Europeans have got to recognize they cannot impose. You know, NGOs go to Tunisia, they start dishing out blueprints for reform, but sorry, the Tunisians have been around. You know, Tunisia in its present frontiers has been around since the days of Carthage, 2,500 years ago. So these people do have a sense of who they are. We cannot condescend to them. It's up to them to decide, and we should say to them, we will back you, we will help you, but come up with a plan, come up with a blueprint. The problem at the moment in Tunisia is the president has a political blueprint, which is, poses certain problems, but he doesn't have an economic blueprint. And you can't run a country into the ground and just expect nothing will happen. So if he does not come up with a different way of running the country or with an economic blueprint, he will run into a sand wall at one point or another. Francis, much to watch out for in North Africa, including how France and Europe plays its hand. Thanks, thanks so much for talking to us. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Francis Giles, an associate senior researcher at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.